Welcome to Leadership in the Digital Age with the Center for Digital Transformation at the Paul Mirage School of Business at UC Irvine. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with executives on the forefront of digital transformation. I'm delighted to be joined by Joe DeSimone, who's the co-founder and chairman of Carbon. Now, Carbon's been on a kind of tear. It's an incredible company. It has raised, I think, somewhere near $700 million of venture capital. It's valued at $2.5 almost billion, and a unicorn, a manufacturing unicorn. And Joe founded it, I think, 20, end of 2013. So a remarkable success story. But it's also been, you know, a massive pivot during this pandemic. You know, huge challenge for every manufacturer. But it's also kind of highlighted the benefits of the model that Carbon has pursued. So, Joe, great to have you with us. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, can you start by just giving us a very high-level overview of the software-driven chemistry approach that you you take? I mean, I'm, I'm not a chemist, and I'm sure many people aren't, but I'm sure you can explain it in language that we can understand. Yeah, thanks, Martin. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so you know, when you think back on 3D printing, a lot of people have been talking about 3D printing as a, a breakthrough approach. Um, it was invented 25, 30 years ago, and I think 3D printing is a misnomer. I think it's 2D printing over and over and over again. And uh, it was in the domain of mechanical engineering to make a prototype. Uh, in fact, the industry is still dominated by prototypes where you do layer by layer and you build up something macroscopically, almost like ink on a, on a sheet of paper over and over again. We came at that and we saw, I said, look, you know, if you really want 3D printing to compete with manufacturing, you have to tackle the big problems. The big problems are speed, uh, materials, uh, and then you had to have uniform properties in all directions, uh, as opposed to properties derived from the layer by layer approach. So we invented a process, and I'm a chemist by training, uh, that allows us to grow the parts, uh, as opposed to 2D printing over and over again. And so, you know, chemists think about growing crystals. Uh, as, a, as an example. And so what we ended up doing was inspired by Terminator and T-1000 with something growing out of a puddle. Could we do this continuously instead of a layer-by-layer -layer approach? And so we use very fast chemistries uh, induced by light, uh, and we have an oxygen um, uh, approach that uses oxygen and light that allows us to maintain a puddle and grow an object out of a puddle very quickly using materials that have the properties to be a final part so that we can take 3D printing from a prototyping only $8 billion industry and start looking at the injection molding world, which is a $300 billion marketplace, because we can make complicated parts without a mold that have the properties to be a final part. Got it. That's, that's fascinating. I love this idea of the, the puddle and the growing out of the puddle. Um, before the pandemic broke, I mean, what kinds of areas were you focusing the technology on? What were your core kind of revenue drivers? Yeah, so we thought in the very beginning that, you know, if we could, and a lot of people were thinking ahead of time about running shoes, that if we thought if we can make running shoes um, uh, competitive financially, uh, economically, and at the volumes, then the world would be our oyster because that was such a big marketplace and demanding on 
economics. And so we, we did a big partnership with Adidas. Adidas is a big part of our business. Uh, but everything related to replacing foam, uh, just like in the running shoe, the foam uh, midsole, we started looking at. So uh, Riddell football helmets, uh, bicycle saddles, other foam products where we replace foam with a lattice derived from an elastomer. And so mm -hmm. it's going to lots of marketplaces in the consumer uh, arena. When we have other we have other materials that are rigid materials that are like ABS polycarbonate and other conventional plastics, opening up the automotive sector. And so all sorts of things like the very first 3D printed parts ever on a production vehicle out of Detroit. We've got brackets and components on Ford Mustangs, F-150 trucks, uh, Lamborghini components, including you know complicated air ducts. Uh, we have other materials in the dental marketplace. We have the world's first FDA-approved 3D-printed dentures, uh, which is a $14 billion market that, you know, takes a, you know, going from eight chair-side visits to one chair-side visit, all bespoke products made at scale. Uh, and then we have some really advanced materials that open up aerospace applications, and we have components on autonomous vehicles circulating the space station. So every material opens up and expands the TAM, uh, and the opportunity for us. That's, I mean, that's an incredibly impressive kind of array of products. Um, I mean, any, anybody who can reduce visits to dentists from 14 to one deserves a medal. But I imagine during the pandemic, obviously people didn't particularly want to go to dentists. So I guess that kind of impacted that part of your business. How have you pivoted and what drove the, the kind of work that we saw in the video on PPE and the swabs? Well, you know, what's interesting is we, so the dental marketplace is a really interesting one. There's over 100,000 dentists and orthodontists in North America, and they are supported by about 7,000 dental laboratories that make the physical products that dentists and orthodontists use. Those labs are our customers, and we're in a good, we're in a good uh, chunk of the very best ones out there. Uh, and we're, you know, we're approaching a thousand printers uh, in over 17 countries, and those printers are connected products. And so when COVID hit, especially the dental marketplace, you know, coming to a grinding halt. But you know, as that was happening at the same time, you know, it was an emergency situation on a couple of critical items like personal protection equipment, uh, like the nasopharyngeal test swabs. And so within like tens of hours, you know, a couple of days, we started seeing everything shut down. We held a town hall meeting with all our customers and said, look, you guys are sitting on at least two very large volume resins with us, the Adidas running shoe resin and a dental model resin, and, which is a rigid material uh, used to make Invisalign-like products. And we said, yeah. look, Everyone's clamoring for PPE. We pushed two different designs. One that was designed for a rubbery material, because that's what they had, and one designed for a rigid material. They were different mechanical designs. We pushed those designs electronically to our network, and they started producing face shields in their local communities for their local hospitals and their local healthcare workers. It was very much a, you know, a, a, a you know, an you know, ability to, to, you know, very quickly in every market, every hospital, you know, every local community had access. And so ended up making about 50,000 face shields a week, you know, during a very challenging time. 
and the in parallel labs through the dental labs they would they would receive your designs and then they could use the machines basically to print ppe exactly exactly and so and then you know we gave them designs and they they built their own little businesses internally they're already connected to their local hospitals and there are a lot of inbound and so it was really an example of local for local production right that's fantastic that's really interesting and, and we, Joe, the, that's what, oh, sorry go for the swabs yeah the swabs we also learned that there was a huge shortage of test swabs uh, and literally in 20 days, we designed a 3D printed version and we used one of our resins that was approved for dental night guards by the FDA, pivoted that resin to a new design. Uh, and then uh, 50 days later, we completed a 400 patient clinical trial at Stanford showing a non-inferiority because, you know, testing is very important about false positives and false negatives showed that we could push that out and that became a new product too. So very quickly pivoted uh, the business on those two, those two examples. Wow, that's fabulous. I'm absolutely fabulous, and thank you for the work that you're doing there. Um, can we just talk a little bit about the business model? I mean, is this kind of like a razor, razor blade model? Like, you know, you give the machines away and then we charge you for the resins and the designs that we've sent out, or is, it, is there a different kind of business model that yeah. underlies? Yeah, so the, our founding VP of engineering, Craig Carlson, was actually the founding VP of engineering at Tesla. He brought out the Roadster and Model S. We have over you know, almost 50 ex-Tesla employees. We built a piece of hardware that's 100% smart hardware. Every aspect of the hardware is remotely controllable software. And we do over-the-air software upgrades every six to eight weeks. And so what we decided to do was to have a subscription model. And this is the very first example of a subscription model for a piece of manufacturing hardware. And what's really, I think, profound about that is how else do you convince somebody to join you in this journey, a customer, when you know you've got 20 years of innovation in front of you, it's going to keep getting better and better. And how do you future-proof them from obsolescence, right? And have the heart, you know, in your heart, you convince somebody to join you, but know that you're not, you know, screwing them over because if they bought something, you know, they're stuck with it. You want them right. to have, and so we, we, we started a subscription model and we started it with, and there was a lot of debate, you know, three, one-year term or three-year term. And uh, we went out with a three-year term. And actually, it's actually trending towards five- and seven-year terms because people, you know, uh, you know want to see in production the longevity of the technology going forward. So it worked yeah. out pretty well. So those machines are kind of incredibly flexible in what they can be pre-kind of or set to do in terms of what produce they produce? Yes, we introduced a new resin, uh, we push new software to the printers, and all of a sudden you can open up a new TAM, right? And because uh, every resin opens up new product possibilities. Plus, we introduced new ability to improve the accuracy, we improved the throughput, you know, we just increased the oxygen in the printers and they, they started going twice as fast, and all of a sudden your factory's got, you know, twice the throughput. And so those kinds of things allow you to do that. Also, new data file, data file handling, uh, and other aspects about your business as we grow, the software aspects of it for managing inventory, workflow, those sorts of things. That's fascinating. I, I love this idea of kind of like the future fit manufacturing kind of model where you can just literally turn things around very quickly and adapt very fast. Um, 
to the audience, you know, please send in questions for Joe. I mean, I think this is one of the most fascinating um, kind of industrial digitalization stories I've come across in my journalistic career. So there's lots of great questions to be asked here. I will ask one more, uh, at least I hope it's great, Joe. And that is what kind of business model kind of innovations has this allowed for customers? I mean, what kinds of things are they able to do? I get that it can be kind of modulated very quickly. I can produce something you know, on a dime. I can shift to produce something else. But are there other kinds of underlying business opportunities that, that this creates? Well, you know, it, it creates some challenges. It's been interesting because, you know, the idea with Riddell, we went from, you know, a, a file to the field in 90 days. Mm -hmm. right? so, so how do you do the innovation cycle? you know, opens up new opportunities uh, because you're rapidly evolving. Instead of innovation happening on, at 18-month programmed approaches because of injection molding tool, you can do it in weeks. And right. so you shift your whole digital transformation approach to your organization opens that up. But then the idea of having, for example, a data matrix, uh, a barcode, if you will, on every part, I think of every part as being alive. Every part has a unique record in the cloud. And so we know all the born on, you know, it's birth certificate, you know, it's grades in school due to performance. Uh, and then the ability of, of having, you know, re replacing parts or even recycle. And, you know, the idea that you can get into cradle to grave and back again, and people can actually quantify their recycling and sustainability opens up, I think, new business models for retaining that customer uh, in yeah. new in new ways going forward. Mm, that's Almost so interesting. I mean, actually, that's a, that's a neat segue to something I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I know Carbon's kind of a mission-driven company. You've talked about kind of like the circular economy, being able to recycle all the materials that are used. Um, and I wonder how has how the pandemic affected that? Because we're now in a world where people might not want to reuse stuff. They really just, you know, single-use plastics might actually become more of an, an issue. How, how do you see this evolving and what role can carbon play? Look, you know, it's a, it's a really important point. A lot of us are getting very comfortable and de desirably so on the safety and security that single-use plastic brings. Uh, but if you don't have recycling strategies, um, you know, this is going to be a problem that never gets addressed. And so there are clear opportunities that one has to think about these ahead of time. And I think this whole area of chemical digestion, you know, back to the liquid precursors where things can be purified, it's going to be uh, increasingly important uh, for the same reason you talked about with the security and confidence of what it is you're using will be, will be key. Got it. Um, I've got a question that's come in that I want to ask you um, from the audience. Uh, do you foresee an expansion in areas like aerospace and automotive where kind of, I guess you have very high kind of safety and security questions. I mean, how much can carbon penetrate those markets? Yeah, you know, when we look at the marketplace, I almost rank the markets based on the regulatory burden. You know, and, uh, you know, a running shoe has a certain challenge that's very different than a car part, uh, that's very different than an automotive, uh, than an aerospace part, that's very, very different than a medical device component. And so I rank things on a regulatory challenge uh, and then the marketplace. And you're aware of the killer apps. That's why I really like consumer 
They're high volume. They're, the barriers from a regulatory point of view are really low. And, uh, and you know, that's why 3D printing, 3D printing is made inroads in aerospace. But that's why 3D printing traditionally has a really low volume and a small market. It's $8 billion. Right. You can go to the high volume uh, marketplaces with innovations and opportunities. That's how we think about things. And I really love these large volume injection molding markets. That's a $320 billion marketplace. Yeah, uh, huge potential there. Um, we don't have much time left. I, I just wanted to ask you about your own personal experience as an entrepreneur. You know, you were an academic for a very long time, then kind of moved into an entrepreneurial space. And I can imagine investors go, well, this guy, he doesn't know what anything about this stuff. Wouldn't trust him if somebody has been an academic. No offense, Vijay. Um, how did you, what was your experience? And now I know the leadership of Carbon has evolved. So can you talk a little bit about the new leadership setup? But first of all, about your own innovation experience as an entrepreneur? Yeah. You know, a lot of us in academia, you know, teach entrepreneurship and uh, we're never on the field. And so, you know, in many ways, you know, I told uh, Jim Getz and the team at Sequoia that uh, when they asked me to be CEO, I'd already hired a CEO and asked me about, about being CEO. And I told them all the reasons why faculty don't make for great CEOs. And, and I said, I agreed to do it for a year, ended up doing six years. Uh, but, you know, it's all about, you know, mission oriented and, and, and hiring great people and being clear about unique business models, but scaling a business, you know, uh, Alan Coleman um, was on my board for, uh, for about four years, three and a half years. Uh, and as we started getting the team ready for the next stages of the company, uh, you know, she had stepped down uh, from the being the CEO of DuPont, um, and she's on the board of Goldman Sachs, Amgen, United, Dell, and Carbon. And as we started getting ready for the next stage of the company, you know, basically chiding her that she's never been CEO of a privately held company or taken a company public and all that. And so we ended up, we ended up switching roles. But Ellen's got, you know, the, the experience and gravitas to understand international expansion, uh, uh, you know, what it takes to crush the grind on, you know, margin uh, accretion, uh, how do you scale and bring a complicated chemical supply chain together. And so it really allowed you know, me to get my life back. And I you know, just joined the faculty at Stanford. And, but we're, but we're you know, as chairman of the company, thinking a lot about where we're going, uh, you know, the opportunity for new business models, sustainability issues, and all those become front and center for things that are important for really the longevity of the company as well. Got it. But it also has a number of other kind of senior female leaders, right, which, you know, in a manufacturing company, I don't think that's that common. I mean, is that Ellen's doing? Is that you're doing? I mean, how well, that kind of CMO, CFO? Yeah, Ellen, Ellen's been a, a big fan of this and, you know, Paradigm for Parity and all the things she's been doing. But, you know, when we launched the company, I think you've got to be, as, as we taught, you know, in our classes, you've got to be intentional about your values and your culture and and you got to do that from the beginning. And so we think a lot about that, you know, just like having a, you know, diversity is a fundamental tenet of innovation. And we learn the most from those that we have the least in common with and get the right culture. And, and then you bring in other values, like we don't let our equipment be used for making weapons and other things. And so, you know, when you're clear about your values, your company becomes a destination for excellence, wherever it is. And that's a key part of, of, of recruitment uh, and uh, and that's how we, we, we lead by that example. Joe, a destination for excellence. I couldn't put it better myself. Thank you for listening to Leadership in the Digital Age. We hope you will follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at UCI underscore CBT or on our YouTube channel, UCI Center for Digital Transformation. 
Please be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a review. Until next time.